your ability to learn is maybe the most important determinant of the success of the company. Of course, there are environmental and competitive factors that are important, but in terms of what you can control, the most important thing probably is how fast can you learn and change based on, on what you're learning. So part of that is the capacity of the CEO to learn, like are you smart enough? But so much of it is the feedback loops. You need really good feedback loops. <laughs> Hi, this is Vlad from The Family. You can hear it in the name. The Family is mainly about people, about unusual people tackling gigantic issues. A safe place for growing entrepreneurs who try to solve complex problems. We support startup founders. This is a big part of our job. But we also produce a lot of content to bring awareness about what it means to successfully build a company today in Europe. That's why we invite a lot of great speakers to the family to share their entrepreneurial journey and inspire the next generation. Coursera is a company we've been in love with for a very long time. Usama, our co-founder, always talks about them in his conferences. Why? Because they are the perfect example of the fact that today you don't need permission to learn anymore. You can find the best knowledge online for free. And it gives anyone the leverage to progress and build things. Jeff is their CEO. But before joining them, he co-founded Financial Engines, one of the biggest fintech companies in Silicon Valley at the time, together with the Nobel Prize in economics, Bill Sharp. He sold it for $3 billion. Jeff is one hell of a leader. Coursera, one hell of a company. And this is one hell of an episode. Um, I'd like to kick off this interview um, by talking a little bit about you. Um, because I, you know, during my research for this interview, I discovered that you have another life, uh, you know, before Coursera as a first employee and CEO of Financial Engines. Uh, can you share a little bit about that, uh, what the journey was like? Yeah, the, um, the, the, the journey was sort of unexpected. I, uh, I was at the business school at Stanford, and I had um, planned to go to McKinsey. I'd worked there for the summer. And two professors at Stanford decided that they wanted to start a company to help people with their retirement. And it's one of these things that I think is very common in Silicon Valley is, you know, certain people know certain people. Well, I had, I had known one of the professors, Joe Grinfest. He was a former SEC commissioner. And um, he was friends with a Nobel Prize winner at, the, at Stanford named Bill Sharp. Uh, some of you might know the Sharp Ratio, which is sort of a finance term and, and Bill wanted to create um, an ability for people to get access to high quality investment advice and this was in 1995 and so the internet was it had been around but the World Wide Web was pretty new Netscape Netscape had just gone public and they were both thinking we should get someone to write a business plan and get it funded so they gave me the chance to write a business plan and they said if you can write a business plan that gets funded then you can be the CEO and so I was wow. 27, and um, it was just me, so I said, okay. Uh, so I told McKinsey that I wasn't going to come, and then um, wrote this business plan, and ultimately got funding, and over the course of 18 years at Financial Engines, a lot of zigs and zags. I saw in your prep questions, you, you, you know a bit about the company, but it wasn't a straight path. It was, you know, many times uh, we almost failed, and many times the board told me that they were going to fire me, if we didn't you know, achieve certain milestones. And so a lot of people, when things work well, they pretend like, oh, I, I always knew it was gonna work well. Yeah. And that's just, that, that was not my experience. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, there's, so, we could do like three hours of interview just on this part of your life. Uh, we'll get more on that later about the, you know, your advice to CEOs and all that, but um, what I was, uh, what I learned about uh, the previous companies that you missed, you were, you were about to IPO, what, five times, something? No, three times. Three times, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. 
three times. Um, and uh, the, the part that I found was hilarious to me, but I'm sure not so much to you, is that the first time was in... That was right before the dot-com crash. Yeah. Um, it was, we, I, I got up in front of the whole company. We raised, uh, we raised an $85 million Series E round in November of 1999. This was when the, the dot-com was going crazy. And I got up in front of the company, and I'm like, we're going public. It was really a stupid thing to do, but I was, uh, I was young and I was excited about it. And then um, we got the org meeting and Goldman Sachs, the whole thing. And then in, in the next three, four months, the market just totally fell apart. And so we never filed. We wrote the S1. We were all ready. And then we decided, you know what, the, it's a hostile environment out there. And we, we had only done $500,000 of revenue. So Which we was were, a we, lot at the time. Yeah, huh? we, that, yeah, that was a lot at the time, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we just postponed it, and then we tried again. Until, yeah. And then, so then in 2007, uh, we are getting going. I mean, right? So that's from '99 to 2007. So eight years. Now, I started 2000 with 103 million dollars in the bank, and uh, you know, one of the lessons I've definitely learned is you almost only ever die as a startup if you run out of money. So I have found personally that if you can raise money on reasonable terms, I, I, I was always much more interested in being successful uh, and having the company succeed than in being wealthy myself. So I, I wasn't very agreed. I was like, if you have a chance, if things are going pretty well, and I, I like to say, raise money on the promise, where you have a big idea, you have the beginnings of evidence but it's not fully concluded and people think, I can jump in before it really takes off. Mm -hmm. It's a great time to raise money, which is what we did. Um, but in 2007, we were seeing this big thing go up and uh, it took us eight years between those two. And then, you know, 2008 happened, the, the Great Recession, yeah. and we took, had another S1 and we didn't file that one either. We just said, okay, we're gonna... So then you start wondering, like, do we cause the dot-com <laughs> crash? Do we cause the stock market crash? We finally went public, but... Um, yeah, it wasn't straightforward. Yeah. Um, so it shows that, you know, third time's a charm, and also you're not responsible for it. <laughs> no. Well, and it could have been a fourth time or a fifth time. And by the way, after the, after this, um, well, when we were pivoting the company, at one point, the company was like, hey, Jeff, you've screwed up a lot. I, I'm like, okay, our strategy is this. Yeah, let's go. And then, it, like, it doesn't work. I'm like, okay. The strategy is this. Well, by the time you do your third or fourth major pivot, a lot of people are thinking, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, we, you, know we, you keep, and, and, and they're like, you always have a lot of conviction, but you're, so far you've been wrong every time. Why should I believe that it's going to work this time? And I actually went to the board at one point and I said, I might not be the right person to be the CEO anymore. And the chairman said, why not? And I said, I said, because I'm worried that the company is losing confidence in me as a leader. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he said, do you, do you still have confidence in your ideas? Do you think you can do it? I said, absolutely, but I'm not so sure as a leader I can be effective because I think I'm losing the confidence of the team. And he, and he said, it's up to the board to decide whether or not you're the CEO, so go back to work. And, okay. Yeah. But it, but it can be really tri it can be tricky to f to fail a lot, you know. Yeah, um, definitely. I wouldn't know about that. I never failed. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and then what happened? So you IPO'd successfully. Yes. And um, how did how did that that story end? Well, you know, so so we had been building the company for a long time. We had a direct sales force. We were selling into large Fortune 500 companies. And we're selling an employee benefit to help them invest their retirement savings. We were selling an online advice tool. And we thought at the beginning that online advice was going to be the thing that disintermediated brokers and changed everything. But the number of people that were using it and the amount that we were making per user was pretty low. And so we had a lot of distribution, but a product that wasn't really seeing a lot of uptake and wasn't making a lot of revenue. And uh, we were starting to get pushback from our companies that um, if you don't get more of the people using your product, I'm going to fire you guys. So you're like, oh, this, the whole thing would become <laughs> crashing down. So we started talking to individuals. I personally got a team at the time. We were probably 100 people at the company, but I, I was very concerned about it. So I handpicked about five people 
And we got on planes and we flew around and we interviewed customers, we interviewed the individual employees and the employers and trying to understand why aren't you using it. And what, what kind of came out was people didn't want to use an online tool. They, they just wanted to have this headache go away. They wanted to have somebody else manage their, their money. And so we pivoted the company and said, you know, in addition to having this online tool, we're going to create a full service investment management service where there's an advisor that you could talk to on the phone and we'll actually do the trades and we'll manage your portfolio and we'll charge you 0.5% of your assets, which was much cheaper than what most people could get and there was no minimum balance. And so, but it was very different. We had to hire a call center and build trading systems. We had to do a lot of things differently. Um, but when we launched that product, we had, I mean, uh, we had product market fit. We, uh, we started, we offered the same, you know, we offered that product to our same customers. And these accounts generally, like a company, would be worth 10 times more when we had this new product than when we didn't. And so suddenly we had the distribution that we'd been building over eight years, and then we finally found a product that people wanted and would make a lot of money, and we sold the product through our distribution channel, and it took off, and we went public. We, you know, the company was bought for $3 billion, and it was, it was great. You know, when you build a company and you finally get a good distribution system, and product market fit with something that people want, then, then things get a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, it's a hockey stick growth that everyone, you know, is looking for and struggles to find. But the thing, that's the thing about startups, it's like, when it works, it works. Exactly. And it doesn't always work right away. Sometimes it works never. <laughs> Which is hard, yeah. Um, about this, no, what, what I found interesting about that part of your journey was that it seems as though, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though this is a pivot that you had been not avoiding, but kind of like, oh, we don't want to go into that. Oh, that's not what we are. And then ultimately it's like, well, that's kind of what works. Yeah, well, we didn't, you know, honestly, I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to work until we got validation with prototypes and testing and things. But what it was is, you know, we don't have a choice not to do this. Like, I don't think we'll exist if we don't do something. And I mean, there is something that is very powerful about being in a startup and being existentially threatened all the time is it really gets your attention. <laughs> and so you really are always trying to figure out what's going to work. There's not a legacy to protect, which is, I think, one of the great things that creates opportunities for, for startups and entrepreneurs is most of the institutions out there serving customers have some legacy to protect, whether it's a distribution channel or certain types of pricing model or a certain customer base. And when the world changes, it creates opportunities where the big incumbents don't often change fast enough. It creates these windows of opportunity. And if only a small company can get in there and exploit it, sometimes you can really chip away at, the, at that base of incumbents. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so the company IPOs, you bring it, you know, to a kind of like stable, more long-term um, strategy where, you know, it's going to work. Um, and then you leave the company after 18? After 18, 18 years. 18 years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. Uh, <laughs> what did you do then? Well, I have three daughters. Um, the, the first one was born when I was 22. I got married when I was still in college uh, because I, I proposed to my wife when I was a, a junior and then... She got pregnant, so so family came pretty soon. Wow. And so when I when, when I was 27 and started at at Financial Engines, I already had two kids, and then the third one was born in the first year. So they were young the whole time we were trying to create Financial Engines, and and my I was working very hard, obviously. Mm. So we were kind of broke. And so was your wife. She's pretty bad. As she, I was just yeah. So she was teaching, uh, trying to keep you know our finances afloat. So when things finally turned out well, um, the, and it's amazing to think that my daughters, two of them were already out of the house in college, and the third was finishing up high school. So my wife really said, hey, Jeff, you're done with this job. Like, you, there's no need, don't stay any longer. We, we never really had our time as newlyweds. We never had our time together. Um, let's take some time for ourselves. And so we, we took, uh, it was going to be one year, and then it, it turned into, we thought, going to be three, and it really turned into two and a half because I took this job at Coursera, but we had a chance just to travel all around the world and go to places and learn things and do things that, that for the most part, we hadn't done because for 18 years, you know, I was, I was really trying to build that company. Yeah, and, and you know, like, when I started looking at your background, I was like, 
this guy went from a company called Financial Engines <laughs> to Coursera. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, where is the connection? Mm -hmm. But then when I started, you know, listening to you more and in, uh, your interviews and learning about you, I realized, well, you are kind of the perfect person f to lead this company because um, you were talking about, like, I'm learning music theory, I'm learning this, I'm like, you seem like the kind of, you know, perpetually curious person. Um, but I was, I wanted to hear from you actually, what drew you to Coursera? What did they, why did they come to you and what made you take the job basically? Yeah, so I, I, I realized one thing about myself is I am a learner. I, I just love to learn. I'm just curious. I'm curious about how things work. I'm curious about how people, why people behave the way they do. I'm, I'm curious about how we have all come to be where we are and I'm curious about where we're going. So um, when I stopped working, it was interesting because the number of brain cycles I had just to focus on other things, on sailing or on music or I played a lot of video games, um, like just learning about different things. Uh, it was really wonderful to, to, to have time to go and see different cultures and um, see different parts of the world. What brought me to Coursera was I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. I, um, I was 40. Six, I think, or 40, 47, and I was, and my wife and I were pretty free to do whatever we wanted. And um, part of what happened is, as, as th this was before the elections in the states, and uh, a lot of things started changing with 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 Brexit, with what's happening in the states. And as we traveled around, the amount of of unrest, and inequality, uh, the amount of people who uh, I saw were you know, there's, all, there's always been, and I think historically even more inequality, but now it's more obvious. And now I think that there are many more mechanisms to, to address some of those inequalities that, that weren't there so much. And so part of it for me was just um, feeling like when you see the world going where it's going and there's, there's a lot of promise and there's a lot of threat, there's kind of a question, well, what, what, role, what role do I play in that? Uh, so it's fun to sit around, you know, sit around learning about you know, gamelan bands in, in, in Indonesia. But it's like, m maybe I should be doing something to try to help more. And so when I got this call from Coursera, and, and you know, it's one of these things too, which is why I think it, it's really wonderful that there is, and I love the name of the family, I, I, so many opportunities do come from knowing people, and, and part of it is knowing them, but part of it is being in the network of ideas knowing what people are thinking about and sharing and collaborating ideas and to some degree too, sharing failures and feeling supported so that you have the confidence to get back up again and you have the sense that, hey, it's really hard, but at least I'm not alone and I'm not the only loser out there. So I, I think community is really, is really valuable. So anyway, I, I have a lot of people in Silicon Valley that I know and I had used a recruiter to hire our head of product when I was at Financial Engines. This recruiter also does board searches. He was trying to recruit me to join a board uh, some, you know, after I had stepped down from, from uh, financial engines. I'm on the board of Silicon Valley Bank, and so I have some board experience. And so to some degree, even though uh, I don't necessarily bring a lot of uh, diversity in, in many respects, I do bring certain experience. And so he was thinking about trying to get me on these boards. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that because you know, we're traveling around. He was retained to do the search for Coursera. And so he, we, we were friends and he knew I was traveling around and then as it turns out, the lead investor for Coursera is uh, New Enterprise Associates. And the uh, person who runs NEA now is Scott Sandell. And Scott Sandell in 1997 was just brand new at NEA when he did due diligence on financial engines. So I've, I've known him for 25 years. So it was a big leap in, to some degree to say, well, from FinTech to, to Coursera, but we knew each other and uh, he saw what I did with all these pivots. And he, I think what he, what he really liked was, um, you know, a lot of the, the way that you go through hardship and difficulty often says a lot about you. And he liked that I never gave up. He liked that I never tried to uh, hide 
behind the good news. Like I was always just very honest. Like this is what's going well. This is what's not going well. And like if I should lose my job. And if I should, if I'm not the right person for this, this company is more important than I am. And if I'm not the right person to be leading it, I should step down. So he saw a lot of those traits over a long time, and he was very familiar with Coursera. And I think what he realized was. Having somebody who has experience, you know, building a, a tech company and taking it public and all that is great, but also, um, you know, he, I think he has certain confidence that that I'm the kind of person that that the board could could trust to at least try my best to, to do the best I could for Coursera. And when the idea came up, and I said to my wife because we had our, our travel plans, um, I said first I asked her. I said, "Do you, we were in Kyoto at the time?" And I said. I said, do you mind if I, if I return this call? He sent me an email that says, Jeff, I just found your next job. I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, and so she said, go ahead and take the call. And then I took the call, and um, he said, that, you know, they're, they're interested, but, but you, you, know, you can't start next year. You'd have to start pretty soon. And she was a Coursera user, and my daughters are all Coursera users. So they're like, Dad, this is a cool company. <laughs> and then she said, she said, Jeff, if you really want to make a difference, this is your chance to really make a difference. Because what the world really needs, you know, she's an educator, and she's like, what the world really needs is education. Because education is the thing that brings opportunity and access to prosperity. I think education has been the root cause of, of human progress and equality. And so I, she's the one who said it to me. She's like, Jeff, you're not going to find a better chance to do something more important with the rest of your life than this opportunity. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's really sweet, honey. Yeah, um, and to give some credit also, like you say now that you made this decision based on um, impact and mission, uh, but going back to early in your career, the decision that you made to join financial interest was also not obvious, was also not driven by money, even though you kind of needed it at the time. Yeah, yeah, you know? and it was heavily influenced by my wife. Also. That's a, another thing I will say is um, peop people that you love and respect I find, and who will give you the bad news and will tell you when like you're wrong, mm -hmm. those are really good people to surround yourself with. My wife, literally from, like, the, from the first day I met her, she, she was that way. Um, and so she, I asked her about the McKinsey thing. And she was like, I said, it was like the most coveted job at the Stanford Business School was the San Francisco McKinsey job. And she said, yeah. it was very simple for her. She goes, Jeff, when in your life will you be able to start a company with a Nobel Prize winner. Yep. I'm like, uh, That's a pretty ne cool like pitch. never. She's like, just do it. She goes, just do it. We'll figure it out. If it doesn't work, we'll figure it out. Yeah, so, so having someone who's supportive is really valuable. And if, if, you, if you have a partner who's going to go through it with you, it's also really useful to both be on board because it is really a journey that you take with your family or whomever otherwise would be spending time with you. And so she, she went through it too, and it wasn't easy for her either. The fact that she was part of the decision-making yep. process, I think really helped us sort of stick to it when, when a lot of the bad things happened. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more, yeah. Um, and also just the last parallel with financial engines is that, so your mission there was also to kind of democratize and or give access to a certain thing back then was you know giving access to financial advice like everyone should have access to financial advice and in this case it's just just something larger and yeah. that concerns everyone you know education yeah, yeah i think the financial engines because it was 401ks it was just the us it wasn't global i was i was really interested in education i was really interested in something global and honestly, I was also really interested in a platform business model. I was always envious. I mean, in the early days, it was eBay was one of the first platform business model. And then, you know, Uber and Lyft and Airbnb. And Now it's so common that we don't even know what a platform is. Like, what's not a platform? Right. No, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I was always like, oh, I wish yeah. I had a platform business model. So this thing obviously is the biggest, arguably the biggest ed tech platform in the world. So I was like, I get to be part of a, a platform business model. Um, but, but, but a lot of what it was when I was at Financial Engines and you know, a lot of retirement is in a world where the company doesn't give you a guaranteed benefit and increasingly social security and social benefits are being cut back largely because of demographics. There's just so many older people being supported by relatively fewer younger people you can't afford, and, and lifespans are getting longer. You can't afford as rich and as guaranteed benefits as you used to be able to. So a lot of the retirement question was about saving money and investing money, but I realized at Financial Engines, a lot of it was 
people didn't earn enough money. It's hard to save for your retirement if you're just making enough to get by. And so I looked at it, I was like, you know, we're talking about kind of financial capital. How do you put away, save, and invest your financial capital? But you're not going to get financial capital unless you have human capital. And human capital starts with education. And so I thought the, heart, the real heart of the retirement problem is not investing, is not even saving, is education. Mm -hmm. Giving people the skills that they need to get the jobs, to get wages that will give them the chance to save a little bit of money for their future uh, in a world where things, it's kind of hard to get, get along day by day. That's true. The, the root of the problem is really education. And, and so I guess you're, when I you know, knew that I was going to interview, like my first question that popped into my mind is what does Jeff think about education? Like the current state, like what's the future of education? How do you see, like what are the problems we need to tackle? How is technology affecting education? Sorry, it's a long question. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, how, how do you see it evolving? So I, li I like to, um, this is just something I, I generally do, is I, I like to get to first principles, or at least try, try to discover first principles, especially about problems. Like what's really at the heart of the problem? Because I found if you, if you can get to the deeper root causes of a problem, you can more fundamentally discover a solution that might work. As I, as I think about education, and I certainly don't have all the, the, the basics, I, I think that, that um, first of all, there's a big difference between educating young people and educating adults. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, the major difference is the payback period on educating adults is often much, much faster than the payback period of educating a child. So a child, when they learn something, they won't go out and get a job and make some company more money. Right? They, might, they, they might ultimately in 10 years uh, help society and they might, um, by being educated, be less likely to create problems for society, but it's kind of a society shared problem. And so it's much less likely that anybody other than say parents uh, or sometimes well-run governments will really invest in the education of kids. Now certain countries are way more advanced than others and the United States is not the most advanced by far. But educating young kids really relies on some entity taking a long-term view of the benefit of educating those kids. It doesn't happen out of self-interest. Educating adults is very different because an adult can have their own self-interest to say, I'm going to get educated and the payback period on my education could potentially be very fast. So, so the first thing I'll say is Education really depends on how old is the person and, and what is, what's the nature of the problem being solved by the education. When I think about for adults, so I decided I was not going to do K through 12. Uh, in, the, in the states we call it K through 12. It's basically primary and secondary school. Okay, I thought you. I'm only going to oh. do <laughs> like, <what>? like college <laughs> okay. um, or, or just up like teenagers up through college because it's just too, it's too complicated and I, and I felt like I, I'll let somebody else solve that problem. That, that's not a problem that where the, where the, if there's a compelling solution, that solution can be delivered to the market in a scalable way. There's just too much complexity. There are too many misaligned interests. Funding comes from too disparate a set of sources. There are agency problems, moral hazard, tragedy of the commons. Like there's so many terms you can All throw on why yeah, it's so yeah. hard to have an efficient uh, educational system for kids, at least in the States. Um, but for, for the adults, the problem is, I think, uh, more straightforward which is fundamentally, the world is changing faster and faster. The skills needed to hold a valuable career are obsoleting faster, and there's new school uh, skills requirements emerging more quickly. I figured so long as individual adults could figure out or get some signal that these are the skills that will help you advance your careers, and you had access to learning those skills, it could be a much simpler business model than for K through 12. And, a lot, and largely what it's about is trying to tie employers, educators, and learners together in what we think of as a three-sided platform. So today we have, our, our basic business model is a three-sided platform. We have 41 million learners all around the world. They come to Coursera to learn and prosper. They learn because we have 190 universities and businesses who published over 3,000 courses, and now we have college degrees. And on the prospering side, we're starting to link our learners who finish these courses to employers who need those skills. Mm -hmm. 
and the employers are hiring Coursera because they need to skill up their employees because the world's changing so quickly, and this is a very efficient way using Coursera and the, our partners' content, a sufficient way to scale up a global workforce on emerging trends. And so it's really that three-sided platform that is kind of the, the heart of our solution to the education problem. It's a very interesting model because normally you have a you know, platform, there's supply and demand, but you introduce a third. Uh, yeah, usually, very often, and, and that's how Coursera started as a, as a two-sided platform where you have you know, producers of value and they use the platform to create value. You think of that as courses. And then consumers of value, those are learners, they come to take the courses. So it was much more simple. But when I, when I looked at this, I was, I was just like pretty, pretty, pretty early on and we were also getting good signals from our Coursera for Business, it was really taking off. I was like, you know, I'm not so sure that just learners and educators can really solve this problem. I think that you have to have the employer in the equation, because fundamentally, most adult learners are trying to learn things that advance their career progress. And so if the, if the employer's not deeply in your business model, then I think it's easy to be detached to the fundamental benefit of what we're providing to learners, which is the chance for economic opportunity, not just intellectual learning. You don't have to be guessing what skills are going to be required of me. You can just learn them and, and get hired. Right. Another thing, too, is that be, because people are going to be working for the rest of their lives, because you know, they're going to get l less benefits when they retire, uh, if, if we say lifelong learning and people are going to be working for the rest of their lives, that means they're going to be learning at work. So I also just thought, how would we create a really good adult learning business if we didn't have a mechanism to teach people at work? And so to some degree, what we've done is we create a platform where universities could offer courses, and then we take the university right into the workplace so people at work can be learning those skills that they need that maybe they didn't learn when they were in college, and maybe they didn't go to college. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really allows us to bring the educational system into the workplace, and I think that's going to be the future of education for most adults. It's going to be lifelong learning at work as new skill requirements emerge. Absolutely. And yeah, so you, you released a report this year about the, the Global uh, Skill Index mm -hmm. report, um, where you released a lot of data about it. Anything you want to share with us? Any findings? Well, I, I guess um, what's, what's, what the, it's called the Global Skills Index. And what it is, it's an assessment of the skill level of learners around the world in 60 different countries in the domains of business, technology, and data science. And the way that we put it together, uh, it was our data science team, is, is especially since Coursera was started by two computer science professors, they, they knew that data were really valuable. So from day one, we were capturing all the data. In these 3,000 courses, the universities have authored these assessment questions. So we know that there's a course on teaching Python, and there's maybe, I don't know, 150, couple hundred questions about Python, we know every single learner who's ever attempted any question on Coursera, we store the answer. And we know the IP address of where they've been coming from. So essentially, we know how, and we also have a rubric that can score what skill does this assessment question test for and how difficult is that question. So we basically compiled all this data and we said, huh, what if we use our, we call it a skills graph. What if we use a skills graph to put out a report that basically says, relatively speaking, how well do learners from each of these countries perform on our assessments in these different domains? And let's let the whole world kind of just see mm -hmm. how well they're doing. And so it was, it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, how did that work out? Well, it, it's worked out, I think, really, really well. Um, one of the questions is, how strong is the signal, really? When, if all we're doing is tallying up how individual learners do on Coursera, does that really have more noise, more signal than noise? Um, yeah. So one of the first things we did is we actually ran just some, some relationships to say, to what degree does, does the skill ranking of a country correlate to the GDP per capita of that country? And we found a 74% R-squared. So it was like almost perfect correlation wow. of the skills. And it's really weird because there's no particular reason why that should happen. It's just just so happens that the skill level, as demonstrated by people taking Coursera courses from a certain country, s correlate very highly to the, to the GDPs. To the GDP, yeah. and, and so what you typically find is that, as you might expect, more developed countries score better than less developed countries. Those countries with better educational systems and a higher, what they call gross enrollment rate, a higher percentage of people that go to uh, you know, more advanced schooling do better. But what's kind of neat about this is you can compare countries to other countries, 
we have a, a, a skills matrix that, is, that goes very deep. And so within each of business technology data science, we have five sub-competencies. Uh, under data science, we have data structures, machine learning, uh, statistics, regression analysis, et cetera. So you can get a lot more, more granular about where are the skills strong or weak in a given country. And then as you talk to heads of governments, when they're thinking about where they want to take their economy, usually they think about it industry first. They're like, we want to be big in financial services or we want to be big in you know, uh, tourism or whatever. We can then say, well, what are the skill requirements to have an industry that's globally competitive? And we say, here's how your current skills are. Here's kind of where you need to get. So if you want to get to this vision of a future economy, you should be thinking about skilling your people in these domains and we can benchmark how you're doing over time to see, you know, are you at a competitive level of skill such that you can have a, a globally competitive economy? Are you working with governments currently? We're working with a lot of governments. And this is one of the biggest growth uh, rates of, of Coursera for business is that governments are now hiring Coursera to oh. train their own employees, but also to train their populations. Uh, can you name some examples? of? Yeah, so we, we're, we work with Singapore, Egypt, India, um, uh, we have a big, our biggest deal is with Abu Dhabi, the government of Abu Dhabi. They hired us to, to, to train 60,000 uh, government officials in the government of Abu Dhabi because a lot of the Gulf Coast countries are realizing that as the, um, as the world runs on more than fossil fuels, it's going to really affect the economies of these countries. And so the only way to really mitigate that the, the sort of dislocation of, of that kind of transition is to build an economy that's based on more than just energy. And so they're realizing that they're going to need to skill, skill folks up. Um, and and, and what's, what we're now seeing is country after country is realizing that, uh, especially when you look at countries with high youth unemployment, education is kind of the only hope. And so they're thinking, how do we educate tens or hundreds of millions of people in these skills that a lot of times our universities aren't even able to teach because they're, they're, so, they're emerging so quickly and they're realizing that an online platform is an efficient way to deliver you know, high-scale, high high-quality learning. And you have better completion scales as well, right? Yeah, well, you know, the completions are it's pretty interesting. If you look at the completion rates among people in open classes who don't, you know, people who don't pay, so if you pay for a course, you can get the certificate when you complete. If you don't pay, you can watch all the videos, but you don't take the test and you don't get the certificate. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, people who don't pay for a course on Coursera, the completion rate's about 10%. It's I'm pretty low. I'm one of those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the people who pay, the completion rate's 40 or 50%. Uh, when people do it at work, there's a much higher completion rate as well. If you're actually getting your degree on Coursera, through an, an HEC, has a, a, a master's in innovation. Um, which is graduating tomorrow. Right? Which is yeah. graduating tomorrow, which I'm excited, I'll be at the ceremony. Um, those completion rates are like 90%. So it's, it's not the case that, oh, if it's online, the completion rates are low. If it's on campus, the completion rates are high. I mean, just think about it. That just, that just doesn't make sense until you think about, well, well, what might that really be reflecting? A lot of what it reflects is the intention of the learner. If you're just doing something for free, maybe you just want to sample it. Maybe you want to try one piece of it. You don't really need to get that credential that says, I learned it. You're just mm -hmm. trying to maybe round out your knowledge in something. The full course completion might not be something you ever intend in the first place. When someone goes to get a college degree, like almost the whole reason they're doing it is they want to end up with that credential. So yes, you learn a lot of things, but you also get a credential that says you learn those things. Mm -hmm. So the completion rates are much higher depending on the value of the credential that you get when you finish your learning. So if you get no credential, completion rates are low. Get a really valuable credential, completion rates are much higher. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, personally, I've used Coursera for, as I mentioned, like a lot of stuff. And one of the things is like, I don't know, like creative writing. Mm -hmm. I wanted yeah. to know how to do character development, just out of curiosity. And yeah. I love that that's the place where you go to learn, just, uh, just to nourish that part of yourself who yeah. wants to learn about different things. Yeah, and you didn't need to, to prove to any employer that you learned from, you know, whatever school how to do character development. You, you were just interested in doing it. So, and I think it's wonderful that people can learn anything they want for free 
you only have to pay if you want to get that credential and take all those assessments. And that's kind of how we found a pretty interesting freemium business model is like yeah. universal access to all the learning for free and the way that we support the growth of the business and you know, writing all the software and, you know, and, 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 and distributing this to a lot of people is by getting some of the people to pay for it. And typically the ones who are paying, as you can imagine, are the ones who want to get a certificate that says, I know how to do deep learning because I learned it from Andrew Ng, or I know machine learning because I learned it from Stanford, or you know, I know programming Python because I learned it from University of Michigan. And those credentials people are willing to pay for, and, and, and frankly, the, the, the economic value of the credential far outweighs the price of buying it, and so it's a great deal for everybody. Absolutely, and what are your biggest challenges today as, as a company at Coursera? You know, um, challenges change quickly. Uh, I'd say that the, I guess there's a couple. I've, I've now, yesterday was my two-year anniversary at Coursera. So I've been here for two years. I feel like I'm finally starting to understand the nature of the problem we're trying to solve. And That's a good thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm a slow learner. It, it, it's, it's hard to really deeply learn. So I've found to really deeply learn something. And I've found that if you really spend some time um, your understanding sometimes doesn't happen right away. So, you know, my best effort right now at saying what is, what, what is the thing that is the biggest challenge, I'd say it's a couple. Um, one is still making sure that the monetization works. Now, we just closed a $100 million Series E round, and so we have like $180 million in the bank, and that really gives you more time to find that product market fit. It gives, it gives you more time to figure it out, but you gotta figure it out. Now, we grew really well last year, and so that's wonderful, but, but basically in the later stages of a, of a growth company, you really wanna be demonstrating predictable high revenue growth. Like That's the most important thing. If you don't have predictable high revenue growth, it's gonna be hard to attract a lot of investment. And then you don't need to prove it right at any moment, but you want to be able to show from experience that as you get bigger, you'll become more profitable. Now, you don't have to be profitable. People call that operating leverage. Your margins get bigger as you get bigger. So I would say that I'm perpetually thinking about how do we get predictable high revenue growth, like for the next three to five years, and how do we prove out the unit economics and, and, and the sort of operating leverage that as we get bigger, our fixed cost, we, you know, we have more fixed costs than variable costs, and we have a chance to have good gross margins and ultimately good profit margins. So that's kind of number one is what, what I would call kind of the business model and financial model, and it's always a work in process. Uh, and then number two is this perpetual... Um, uh, concern that I have, I didn't have it at, at, at Financial Engines, but I, I have it at Coursera, which is, are we doing too much? So a lot, there's a lot of competition in EdTech. And the general conventional wisdom, and, and I'm a big believer in it, is that typically companies who are really, really focused will outperform a company that spreads their bets. So they, there's a little phrase that sometimes is used in Silicon Valley, which is startups usually die from indigestion, not starvation, right? They just try to do too many things then, and they don't, get, they don't get anything right. So when I, when I came into Coursera, we were doing a lot of different experiments and, um, and I organized them a bit differently and we reorganized the company and the team so that we could link and coordinate our activities better, but still the idea that we're gonna have a three-sided platform, not a two-sided platform, I thought, fundamentally, this seems like it is required, kind of, we think about minimum viable product, there's kind of like a minimum viable business model. What's the simplest business model that you can have that has a good chance of growing and being sustainably different from competition? And, and for me, it almost came down to, it was, this question was almost as simple. And I kept on talking to the employees and the board, like, guys, I think the minimum viable business model is a three-sided platform, not a two-sided platform. But al almost all of our competitors had a two-sided platform. Yeah. So I'm like, the only way that we're gonna beat a two-sided platform is if we have network effects among the three nodes of our three-sided platform. If, e if each of these businesses that were hiring Coursera didn't create value for our learners and our, our educators, then that's not gonna be additive, that will be subtractive. Even if they're giving us revenue, 
chances are our distraction, the opportunity cost of trying to satisfy a third node in your business model, even if you're getting paid for it, will probably out, the, the opportunity cost will outweigh the revenue that you're actually getting. So a lot of what we have to do is make sure that we link these three stakeholders together. So every time we get a new university, learners are happier and employers are happier. And every time we get a new employer, learners happier and educators are happier and the same thing for learners. And so far, it's been working great. So two years ago, we, we sort of kicked this off and, and the synergies are really happening. And so yeah. I'm, I'm like, I, I'm really Good liking to see it. you got it right the first time. And some <laughs> of our competitors were, did not take a platform business model. They were much more focused and they've really been struggling. And, it's, and there's no sense of, uh, you know, we knew, we knew that we were right because I, I, I was actually almost 50-50. Clearly, I was a little bit more than 50-50, as was the board. I wasn't sure that the three-sided model was gonna be the way to go. So that, that, that just, that bothered me. And one of the other reasons it really bothered me, I, just, I was worried about it so much, is because there, there are a few things that a CEO really is responsible for, but that kind of fundamental, what is my business model? Your board will not tell you that, your employees will not tell you that. Like, that is something that clearly, working with your exec team, if the CEO, if that's not the CEO's job, then, then what is? I think, when I think of the CEO's job, I think strategy, choosing who is your customer, what's the business that's gonna serve them, making sure you have a big enough opportunity and make sure you have sustainable advantage. That's why I think of a strategy. Team, who do you hire? Especially the people that report to you because that's gonna set the culture, it's, it's that, that's gonna set the tone for so many things. Then culture, which is what kind of environment do you provide for, for your team? And that's really what a CEO does, is they set strategy, they, they hire the team, and they, they, they set the tone for the culture, and then, then ultimately they make sure that performance is happening. Um, but I was really worried about the business model because like, that is so centrally yep. the CEO's job. Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect transition for the last part of the discussion before we uh, open it up uh, to discussions from the audience. I wanted to uh, you know, just get some uh, CEO advice uh, from you. Uh, you started this job without ever having, uh, not this, job at Coursera, yeah. but the previous job, the first time you were a CEO for a company, you've never fired or hired anybody, and you've had this, I mean, amazing learning curve, uh, you know, from there to today. What has been your biggest source of learning? Yeah, the, 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 biggest, the biggest source of learning has been the people that I've worked with and, and my board, but most, mostly it's the people that, that I've worked with. And that's one of the most important things to me about choosing a team is, especially if you're the CEO, your ability to learn is maybe the most important determinant of the success of the company. Of course, there are environmental and competitive factors that are important, but in terms of what you can control, the most important thing probably is how fast can you learn and change based on, on what you're learning. So part of that is the capacity of the CEO to learn, like are you smart enough? But so much of it is the feedback loops. You need really good feedback loops. And the feedback loop that's there all the time in your face, if you're doing a good job, are your people telling you, this isn't working, this is working, I think we need to do something different here, maybe we should do this. And, hey guys, I, I got this great idea. That's a dumb idea, we shouldn't do that. Or, hey Jeff, you know, we, we should be doing this. Or, early in my career, I gave this speech where I thought everyone was gonna be really excited. I was like, we could do better, da 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 da. And afterwards, one of my direct reports says, Jeff, that speech was one of the worst I've heard. <laughs> it was so demotivational. I wanted to motivate oh people, but yeah. I was young in my career, and I thought everybody was like me, so I would always do things that I thought was going to be helpful, yeah. but people are different. Yeah. So getting feedback from different people as to what works for them is, is really important. So I'd say the, the key thing about learning is who you surround yourself with, but, but I think even the more important thing is that learning is the primary job of a CEO. I find it really refreshing, um, your lack of, I would say, ego on this topic, because it seems that, like I've heard you say things like, um, being a CEO is a privilege, but not just like a cliche phrase, but like, if I'm here, it's because I'm the best person to do the job, and uh, I'm not supposed to do things I like doing, yeah. but things that the company needs me to do. Uh, and, you know, all, you know, you have just, I don't know, this kind of refreshing approach to the whole thing. I've never heard anyone say it like in those words. Thank you. Which I find uh, really interesting. We, we just put out our first draft of our leadership principles at Coursera. The, the, the number one leadership principle, there are six, the number one is serve the cause. 
I, and, and I really believe this. I believed it at Financial Engines, and I believe it at Coursera, and I wouldn't join a company if I didn't believe it to be true, and there are many companies where it not, would not be true. The company and the mission of the company is more important than any single person, including the founders, including my bosses, the board, including me, including anybody sitting in our company. The cause comes first. The final uh, leadership principle is what we say at Coursera is love without limits, which is separate from anything we're trying to get done, every human being deserves respect and dignity. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think if you build a culture where people really say, we are here for something bigger than ourselves, and the way that we, we, we're going to be performers, we're going to do performance reviews, we're going to give really candid feedback, you know. But at the end of the day, we will respect and embrace the diversity and dignity in every single person. That's, that, that, to me, that's very touching. And so I, I think a lot of it is, it's, it's not about me. It's not about me. Uh, and, I, and that's, you know, I feel like if I can serve a cause that matters, that's a real privilege. And I was just hearing you, I was wondering, how do you establish... It's, I'm trying to find the right words, but how do you establish your, I would say, authority as a CEO? Like having this, I'm listening to everybody, I'm taking the feedback, yeah. it's all great, but then when you have the final word, like when you're trying to convince people to do a fifth pivot that they don't believe you anymore, how do you, you know, establish this kind of authority, or do you? Yeah, the, um, like where, where does authority come from? There's formal authority, which sometimes, sometimes you can rely on, uh, I would advise you to not use it very much. Um, and, then, and then there's informal authority, which you might think of as influence. Mm -hmm. I influence. think the heart of leadership is influence. So how do you influence people? I think a lot of the ways you influence them is by creating a vision and, and getting emotional buy-in, but, but sometimes it comes from just having conviction. And uh, what's, I think what's hardest for me about being a CEO is when the company's not doing well and I don't have a clear idea of how to fix it, and I don't have any conviction of, of what that should be. And usually when that happens, I talk to customers and I talk to employees until I get some conviction, and then I can be a decent leader again. But to me, if I don't have conviction on something, I'm in trouble, and so I need to go listen to people and put together an idea in my mind of, of what might work. And then I can come back and say, all right, here's the next good yeah. idea. <laughs> Sounds like a good system. Great. Um, thank you for this really cool discussion. It was a pleasure having you, and I hope you also enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I hope to see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Thank Erica. you, Jeff. We have way more episodes, more content to listen, watch, read. Please. Take a moment to rate this podcast, subscribe, and share our episodes with your own community if you liked it. We have many more initiatives for you to continue learning. Our YouTube channel, our Medium, our events. Check our website to learn even more about what we do at The Family. Bye-bye.